Hello, I'm Dan Safarik, and welcome to Unfrozen. And I'm Greg Lindsay, and today's episode delves into, well, at least two areas of, of recent concern. One, of course, uh, the climate inside China, what it's like to be architects to work there, uh, as, of course, the Chinese economy does not have its post-COVID rebound as expected, and, of course, as various, uh, well, let's just say political changes in the climate under uh, current ruler Xi Jinping has really sort of changed the calculus for firms working there from more than a decade ago. Also, we'll cover this episode, uh, some of the evolving projects in the California Bay Area. Uh, listeners have probably, of course, caught wind of that by now of the various Silicon Valley billionaires who have been acquiring land in Solano County and attempt to build a city from scratch. We won't be covering that today necessarily, but we do have some guests who have been working in the Bay Area and hopefully we'll have an interesting conversation about how do we build our way out of the housing problems there and what is the future evolution uh, of that region. So with further, without further ado, Dan, who are our guests for this week? Our guests are Verse Design, that is Paul Tang and Courtney Bauer. Um, Paul started the firm uh, in Shanghai while running USC's overseas program there um, after entering some design competitions in which uh, they were successful. Uh, Verse is currently leading an international design team, and this is what we were referring to, uh, developing 16,000 acres in the Northern California wine country in a fire-prone valley, which sounds Kind of risky, so I think we'll uh, we'll get right into it. Uh, two risky ventures. Uh, first up, Paul uh, and Courtney, can you tell us a little bit about the firm's gestation and how how you two um, got to work together? How oh, we got to work together? Sure. Um, thank you for having us on today. Uh, we're we're excited to be here and and take some time to talk with you two about um, this. Yeah, really risky and challenging. Um, problems that we've been working on here in the office. But Paul and I met um, quite some time ago before he had uh, ventured to China to run the program that you were talking about and ultimately uh, form the partnership of Verse Design. Uh, we met through academics, so that is something that our firm is rooted in. Um, Paul and I are both professors. Paul, much longer tenure than myself, almost 20 years at USC. Um, and uh, I met him, we got, we got introduced, and he needed a substitute to go and lay some of the groundwork for um, venturing over into China 20, uh, 2009. So I um, substituted for him while he was away for a couple of weeks on a studio. Uh, he came back and said, okay, I'm really busy, and you, this is working out really well. Uh, we had good communication, um, and so I kind of carried through with that studio. And then we, um, at that same time, collaborated on an invited competition for a high-speed rail station and associated cultural plaza um, in, in China. And so that is basically how we kind of started together and the startup, um, the first design tra trajectory of both of our previous careers. I think your dates are off by a year. Okay. Because in 2008, <laughs> you substituted for me. Okay, 2008. Right, because that's when we established the American Academy in China, the USC American Academy in China. 2009, I had to go and lay the groundwork to get that platform off the ground. You were substituting to me. No, that was 2008. 2009 is you and I started to work together. And we did the competition here. Right. We started the, the high-speed rail competition. Right. In 2009, um, and it just coincided with the fact that I had to be in China no later in 2010 that we won the competition. But unfortunately, she decided not to go because that was the one and only project. We had no idea at that moment in time how that's going to fare. But since I'm going anyway, so I took the remainder office, about five of us, um, and we moved to Shanghai. And in the meantime, you went to where? I went back to the East Coast. That's where I'm from. Um, so I was supporting my family at that time um, with some yeah, just helping out um, with my parents and still working, obviously, in architecture and, and continuing to gain um, various experience that way. Right. So, interesting enough, um, that project was real. Um, in fact, 
about 200,000 square feet, I believe, um, designed to construction. We finished it in 29 months. And so, so these were the, the I'm going to call them the heydays in, yes, in China, where, right. you know, there were these amazing cultural projects that were moving at lightning speed and, right. you know. And so the original five that started the Shanghai office uh, grew up to about, at that moment in time, we were up to 75 people. So come 2012, uh, USC contacted me and says, oh, your term is up. You need to come home. <laughs> I'm looking at the amount of work we had at that time, and I said, I don't think I can come home. So the reality is, is that it was exactly 19 years, about a year away from being invested, I believe, um, and uh, had to make a very difficult decision and resign from USC to continue and build a practice. Uh, and that practice in Shanghai was very successful. And eventually, our former clients here in the U.S. visited us in 2014, saw what we were doing, uh, two different developers offered us to come back. And so um, one of which is the 3075 Tech, which I'm not sure whether uh, you are, that you know, which is the project we finished in Silicon Valley. Um, and uh, that, brought me back home. I called Courtney and says, come back to the West Coast. <laughs> and uh, we established back in L.A. So we currently have a sister company in Shanghai, but my 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 share of that company is very low now. But uh, I think um, let's, if we could, just skip a little bit more um, information on that, partnership and collaboration, okay. because that is um, an important ongoing collaboration that we have and also something that sets the stage for the trend that you'll you'll hear about in the rest of our work that we've been doing since reestablishing here in LA. Um, so having that um, kind of international front, being able to operate in multiple, multiple cultural settings, business cultural settings, which is, is unique um, and kind of being able to bridge the gap between those. So knowing how to do the business run and operate the business in both the US and China in this case, but you know, some other countries that we've, we've um, done some work in as well. Um, having an open mind to that, having that understanding about the fact that there are different ways businesses are run in different cultures, being sensitive to that and then helping the dialogue through is, um, one of the things that really rounds out our base architectural services, which we do, we take pride in, right? But these are some of the things that we build um, build around that, that our clients really find valuable and useful. And so right. um, that's that having that exposure and experience um, positions us to, to perform some different tasks and, and for some unique um projects and developers here in the States. Yeah. So one of the things that Courtney talked about, which is really that cultural difference, right? In the way in which how the professionals are not only understood by the public, but the roles that we play. And they are dramatically different, right? In China, um, particular in our position being foreigners um, and being the academic director of the USC American Academy in China certainly didn't uh, absolutely help uh, my position. Um, we learned actually quite a bit about how they do projects, uh, what the metrics are, and what their concerns are. Um, and taking that lesson that we have from China, we actually brought some of it back because I do see that there is some certain benefits when the architects actually have a hell of a lot more say um, than we do here. And it all comes down to understanding values, whether that's design value, uh, financial value, um, it all really begins to address the issue of value. And that, in turn... Agency and community values are right. also like, right. some of our key stakeholders that hit stakeholders. That's right, that's right. And so the, the, the ability then to talk to our clients here in terms of values um, really bolstered our 
position back in the U.S. with our clients here. Right? So we do challenge our clients in terms of what, you know, quote unquote, they want to do. Um, and we take it from a contextual um, uh, perspective to look at it. And then we're not just talking about the physical context in which the, the structure is to be located, but also within the, the financial context, the market context. And we basically will help them to start, first of all, uh, reanalyze their programming all the way into um, siting of the building, site design, and slowly into a fully developed uh, project, right? So, so the, the principle in that is proper, um, the proper sort of the selection of the, the type of program to fit in within the context that you're in, particularly in an urban context, actually is in part uh, a critical component of the financial model. We, right. we try and make sure that these things are all working together that's right. need to, and that's what ultimately results in a in a successful project for all everyone that's involved. In right. It. So translating that to more the designer's language really has more to do with just celebrating the street, creating more pedestrian activities, right? Um, how to really address the ground floor? How do you address these different uh, issues as the building begins to engage the site? And ultimately, for the clients. Um, you know, good site planning, good programming is actually a good business planning because in the end, the the the, the process of doing the development, um, you know, is, is a business um, and you're competing um, with all the other projects that's out there. And so if we internalize those components, which not all the architects here in the U.S. really like to address, but we address it from a uh, creative approach, right, which is to really critically challenge these ideas, re-examine the, the mix of the different programs or suggest alternatives, um, but always is able to take all the way back to the importance value criteria of the, the, the client. And so for private developers, um, predominantly is how the project's financed. And once you're able to define a project based on those terms, it becomes, you almost become, you know, that your process is, is a lot easier in terms of design. Uh, because not only do then they trust you, um, they feel like that you understand what their objectives are. And that, that laterals across to institutional clients, um, other clients who have less concerns about the market, but definitely it's always about value, right? So, like I said, I, but one of the biggest lessons we learned from there to here um, is really begin to not just understand design from the typical perspective of the architect, but understand design as really a value added to our client, to the end user, to the community uh, at multiple levels, right? Um, and and not seeing them as a parameter, but seeing them as a design opportunity. And that really worked. And so similarly, when we were in China, um, we brought our biases, our practices, particularly in the way in which projects are sequenced um, and areas where you really need to focus, right? Because China's moving at a, at a lightning speed, right? And it's just going so fast. Um, usually that's at the suffering of the quality control, right? And so the traditional for the collaboration that you would create is we as designers take everything up to the DD and the clients will shake our hand and thank us um, and then give it to a local design institute and they will butcher it. Right? I'm not saying they'll butcher it. It's just things get changed along the way. They don't know the intent as well as, right. the, as the originator of the team that worked on it. So, Right. And so since we were on the ground in Shanghai, we decided on the most part to change that relationship because it's a three-party relationship, right? There's the owner, there's us, and there's the local design institute, right, which are the architects of record. We would then say, hey, listen, we'll do the schematics, we'll do the design, and we're going to forego our fees in the design development. With the idea then is that we, well, we actually then take that fee and put it to the back end. 
to support the final detailing all the way into construction. It's a little higher um, for our clients in terms of their, their, their fees to us, but in terms of the end product, um, in the early days, we were really able to advertise that whatever you see in the rendering is exactly what you're going to get out in the field. And at that time, that was a struggle. Today, it's much better uh, because as they build, they, they've gained more experience. But when we started in 2010, and that process proved itself at the Bumble High Speed Rail Station, it really created a tremendous amount of value just to, to allow us to really help bridge the understanding of the design intent and prioritize those intentions that are, that are important. So it doesn't get lost during the process of construction, right? Because a set of drawings has no priorities. It's black and white. So that's a lot on on how we how we became yeah. first design, but also our philosophy and kind of you know how we how we have been cultivating the office. No, oh, and thank you for that. Um, I, I guess the question would be, you know, these 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 principles were obviously hewn during the halcyon days of Chinese construction. Uh, as an aside, I've spent two years in Shanghai as well. Um, I was at the at Tongji University heading up a local office of our nonprofit, um, which is a different dynamic, but uh, some of the principles still apply, including the phrase uh, in in the West, the, a contract is the end of a negotiation. In China, it's the beginning of a negotiation. That's right. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, there was, there was definitely some butchery of our plans uh, when we were over there, too. But um, now things, the climate is quite different. You know, we have a more conservative design environment that's coming from the top down. Are, are you finding that these these same principles apply? Do you have to change your model? Are you get, Are you getting work, first of all? We had some work um, started in 2016, a year after we established uh, First Design LA, and this, this was a request from the uh, a branch of the China um, China Rail authorities. Right? You probably know better, uh, Daniel, of these kind of hybrid companies. Right? So, um, for a very large project in Qingdao. Um, and we noticed a dramatic change in the way in which projects are approved and the attitude of the government approving projects. They're far more strong-willed about what they want rather than what's logical and, and reasonable within the project that you're working on. So that was our last, you know, that project, we wrapped it up in 2017, 2018 at the latest, I think, before COVID. And we decided, at least for the LA office, that unless we're there personally, um, uh, as you know, Daniel, it's all about personal relationships uh, in China. And if we can't be there, um, it is far better to allow our Shanghai sister company to deal with it. And they have maintained success in their projects right. in bringing them on. And that um, is in part due because they had started um, several years back, I guess probably at the beginning of our design, Shanghai, maybe a little bit before, but trying to make sure that they were differentiating product type, right? So not always going with a product that was what had been done several times before, and maybe that performer was kind of very well known in terms of unit size, unit count, unit uh, right. building configuration, but already trying to build in uniqueness to the product type. Residential is kind of, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the residential there, but then the programming that comes with some of these larger re residential developments, there is typically the requirement for cultural programming that's um, inserted in that and really um, discussing with the developers the importance of paying attention to that, focusing energy and resources on that, um, that then kind of bolsters the overall development as well as um, unique offerings in the residential. So Daniel, um, it's interesting because um, the lead partner now in the Shanghai office 
back in 2010, the, the, the truth is, is that, um, the, my partners already had a company and they were operating. It is the joining between his company and my company and we create a verse design. And and he was actually a faculty member at Chongji. And in fact, he taught Philip Yuan and he taught the current uh, uh, dean, um, Li, Li Xiaoming. He might be called Shan, Shan Li. He, I don't know when you were there, but um, back 15, then he was uh, 15 to 17. I was there from 2015 to 2017. So Sean, Sean Lee was at the time, um, the, the, he was a professor in history and theory. And you probably know Philip, right? Philip Young. Yeah. So, um, my partner in Shanghai had taught, um, Sean and I believe Philip as well when they were students. So he's about my age, we're a little older. Um, and it was, you know, we came together um, in 2010. So he continues that practice. Um, you know, in China, is really understanding that culture because it is dramatically different. And uh, he's far better than that there. Um, what I typically do, I'm the poster boy, right? So um, he, I will often offend the clients because not knowing what to say and how to say things and being much more blunt and transparent and uh, had to learn that that's not the way it works yeah i i'm just laughing because i've i've had all those experiences too uh so taking this taking this uh discussion back over the ocean again to to california uh, I note that there is actually a through line uh, in this conversation besides the fact that the firm is based in both places. It appears that this new project uh, in the California wine country, which is called Glenock Valley, am I pronouncing Glenock, it? Glenock Valley, yeah. Glenock, has at least one of the investors appears to be from China. And then you've also got um, other international developers involved what's the what's the dynamic like on on that project and and I, I understand that you know as one would expect if you're developing an eco resort in sensitive country you're going to get some local uh, opposition i've seen some news articles about it saying you know that, that that there was a lot of concern about fire and things like that i'm kind of asking multiple questions at once but i guess i'm curious about how you've brought home some of these principles that you honed in China and applied them in a distinctly different situation, at least in terms of uh, landscape and how citizens behave with respect to, you know, prospective developments. In China, they don't have as much of a choice, but in California, they have lots of say. Yeah. So it's interesting that that project, I mean, you did ask a lot of questions. So I'll just give you, um, talk about the project kind of overall and the, and the, wide range of um, people that we have had a wonderful opportunity to collaborate with on this project because it is huge. And so the developer who, you know, that is kind of our entryway. Um, initially, not the developer, the, the investor, right? the investor. It turns out the investor is one of our clients, both my partner and I in Shanghai since 2006 before Verse Design was even established. He continued to work with us while Verse, uh, from Verse Design Shanghai all the way until now. Um, he continues to have projects with my partner in China. Um, they have also a very diverse portfolio of other parts of the world to include the US. This one actually being one of the first ones. Um, and he, was the one that actually brought us on because typically if you really understand the size of our firm, we're a relatively a small firm. Um, we're a little top heavy. Yeah. They are a small firm. Yeah. So if it was going through the traditional US uh, RFQ process, we will have a hard time to be even qualified. I think it came down to the, the way in which the, the investor trusted our capabilities, trusted the way we worked, uh, introduced us then to the developer. Um, and in fact, um, 
Which that isn't was a single person. It right. was an entity. Yeah. It was an entity. And it was a, a U.S.-based um, development team. And despite the recommendation, um, there was, in fact, an RFQ process subsequently, an RFP process. process. Um, and um, we were not only, I think there were five. They solicited five different proposals and qualifications. And we were able to... Um, successfully passed that hurdle um and so and that's that was an rfq they did kind of go out for an rfq on one aspect but our role in that project um we have said we we played several roles on that project so the the um kind of vast amount of collaborators both technical experts um consultants kind of in the design and engineering realm but also the international cast of designers and architects that um, the development team wanted to leverage their um, their client base and and, thing, and their prior work on, on luxury high-end, um, ultra high-end resort. So we've got countless <laughs> um, amounts of um, people that we're working with. I think it's five international architects that are, that are anchoring the the key um hotels and amenity spaces but but then there's ancillary ones several phased project um so the way that you know i think the skills that we brought to the table which um the investor had identified was this this ability to be transparent and bridge the gaps in communication and kind of um perspective right so coming from everyone's coming from different countries they've got different business practices different even just down to different delivery models on 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 construction sets and expectations of what's inside those things so being able to um actively talk through those things bring things into alignment with what was going to be needed here to bring um bring forth entitlement and then ultimately design and cd um production um also weighing with budgets and and all of the things i mean everything is going at once you've got entitlements you've got environmental concerns which i'll get to in just a second um budget um work that needs to be done from the development team because they are looking at micro five micro projects communities that they're trying to develop and think about all at once and how you know how that's going to happen and so any one team can't be isolated to the community that they're that they're focusing on because there's decisions that need to be made holistically so we were um often providing that lens and perspective because we were involved in all of them um so um so let's talk a little bit maybe now about the environmental um aspect of it and then also the communities so the stakeholders that are involved so it's very as with anything um there are multiple perspectives and and camps of thought on um projects new projects so the projects in lake county and the majority of the neighbors and communities that are right there um, looked very positively on the development because it was economic growth that they needed. It was influx of jobs. It was going to be a lot of work and bolster their county, right? And not to mention the the tax revenue that would that would ultimately come from this. So so there is a huge constituency that looks up. On the project at those aspects and says listen we're going to do this in a smart way but this could be a real benefit for us that we need um and then yes there are voices um that are trying to kind of preserve and make sure that from an environmental side things are are being done in the best way possible the the trouble there is that the best way is not clear-cut it hasn't been proven out. And so that, you know, that is a challenge. But our development team and our investor um, always looked at this project with a lens towards um, making it better, right? Making that environment better and preserving what it has. Because this property, six, the first phase of it, 16,000 acres, it's huge. 
It's so diverse. Each one of these hotel um, anchors, boutique hotel anchors, amenity anchors, um, they're basically in their own kind of unique dynamic environment. So along the property, there's that much variation that they that they are able to kind of um, make these different communities based, you know, within with the initiation point being the land itself. Um, there is an ongoing ranch operation, vineyard operation. Wenock Valley's got its AVA. It's had that for a while. That's an ongoing operation that wasn't going away. Um, and the intent was always to maintain that on the property and have these things integrated with each other. Um, there's ongoing ranching on the property because that's how they maintain some of the overgrowth. Okay. Yeah, in fact, although the, per the property was purchased, but when they purchased it, part of the purchase had some long-term leases that they also purchased. And some of these leases are like 99 years. And I don't know like where they are on that 99 years. So although the entire property is, is uh, 16,000 in, in Lake County, there was a good percentage of it um, that has a previous contract that actually locks it out for for a duration of time they're leased out. Not to mention one of the primary objectives that was given to us as a challenge for the design team to solve is to minimize the footprint. So was it one percent or was it zero point one percent? I think it was it was I think it was zero point one. Yeah. We, zero point. Yeah. So we were told that our footprint in totality has to be less than zero point one percent. And so it's amazing. It's um, in that in that requirement, uh, we actually have learned quite a few things. When you are out in this very rural, beautiful land, right? Um, when you say zero point one percent, that's great, right? We can achieve that, right? You, you just need to really be very sort of uh, strategic in terms of how you place your 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 your, 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 footprints, your buildings, but unfortunately, the fact is, is you still have roads and you still have utilities. And the other thing that's a little bit kind of uh, a conflict within itself, you know, for a road to be established um, and to mitigate this condition of the fire that we talked about earlier, there was a requirement by the state that besides the road, you need to clear like 20 feet on each side of the road right so you do the the fireplace which which um you have to keep an eye towards that right because you you want to make sure you're not disturbing uh, the environment and then you've got overlays of all the environmental studies there's species there's flora and fauna that shouldn't be touched needs to be monitored wetlands all of these kind of complex um things going on watershed was one of the biggest issues so. that's right um so the the investor and the developer were um you know very well aware of fire in this area when they bought it and they also want their property to be resilient to fire so they took that head on they weren't forced to address that in you know at the back end and entitlement that was something that was always a focus of the development um and how to do it in the most productive way which what I was mentioned before that that's not a there's not a proven set of tools that says this is the right way to do it right okay. so so we had um, some experts from UC Berkeley work with the with the team to discuss the um, building hardening aspects the interface between the um, the wildlands and the, the urban interface the wooey parameters um, but then how to elevate those. Um, systems were um, designed and, and planned throughout to kind of go above and beyond the code um, needs and thoughts at the time, but actually installing exterior suppression systems, alarm systems for fire um, throughout the area. But the, the most interesting kind of, just kind of concept that you got to work your, your head around is that these fires, when they're when they're moving through, it's the 
it's the unmaintained land that gives them the most fuel. And so actually by coming in and, and putting some roads in, you're already developing serious fire breaks. We're now providing um, proper egress from some of the really remote parts of the ranch, which granted there wouldn't be many people there without, imp you know, the infrastructure and the homes, but there were some, some blocked dead areas. So that now we've got connectivity in and out of the property. That's helpful for the adjoining neighbors as well, because if there's a fire coming from the other direction, now they've got access through and out from another from another direction. So this idea of fire breaks along the road is, it, you know, just kind of push that to the fact that they are maintained lands, and that actually helps control the fire. So the the, the conflict that I'm talking about here is, you know, when we were given the 0.1% uh, uh, footprint um, directive. The other directive that was just as important is to touch, to really leave the the environments intact as much as we can, to try to not disturb the ecology that's there because it's a beautiful property. And so, in the end, I, I think one of the things that you can kind of start to relate back to what we talked about earlier in terms of value, right? Now, we, we did understand that the area at least within that period, was very prone to fire, right? The PG&E uh, fire because of the, the lines, right? Just because of that one thing alone, um, at one point we even considered to be completely off the grid and to see if we could generate our own powers. And at the same time, we decided that even if we're going to go with PG&E, we're going to lay the lines in. Because all underground. All underground. Right, to serve the entire 16,000. To give you an idea, that's almost the size of Manhattan. Okay? Manhattan is, uh, what, 20, 24,000, something like that, right? We're, we're just 8,000 shy. Well, that is a perfect segue to actually ask. I was curious, you know, again, given the, all the media attention around the proposed Solano Project, California Forever, I believe they're calling it, that's at 55,000 acres, obviously to the east of your site sort of in the Sacramento floodplain, so different environmental issues. But given all your experiences with this project, what advice would you have for them or what are the challenges they're going to have to deal with if they try to build, you know, this large-scale community on the land assemblage they put together? What do you think are the most trenchant takeaways from your own efforts to do large, well, large-scale development, obviously in your tiny actual section of the footprint, given those environmental challenges and given, you know, all the other regulatory challenges? And then there's the fact that People who move into those homes might not even be able to get their homes insured, given we see insurers pulling out, which is a whole other separate issue. But, but yeah, any any advice for the aspiring city builders over there? Um, from a marketing perspective, hire us. <laughs> no, um, I think it's just we've got to be very careful about making small, single causal to um, connections, because it's not that simple. Right, there are multiple, multiple layers and layers, right? You could be so concerned about the fire and yet you're not looking at the environmental impact of the measures you have to implement, right? Um, that could be an issue. So it, it really requires a much more comprehensive look across the board. And so the, you know, the other thing I know that, that we did mention on this, um, the one of the main uh, investors and developers, um, on this project, it's actually Adrian Zeka who started the Amman resorts throughout the world, right? And there's a philosophy about really not just respecting the place, but also respecting local culture and actually celebrating it, right? In fact, I I have um, I have a a student who's actually now in Bali looking at how the Amman Resorts actually changed the in the uh, sort of the building culture um, in 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 Bali and making comparison with the much more traditional versus the the resorts. Right. Anyway, um, so when we are looking at these different multiple challenges, um, looking to the community, right? yeah, but and and the resources that are there. So that that I think is maybe one broad recommendation that I that I could say is that 
for example, on, on the Gwenock project, there was a ranch manager there. His name's Randy. He is a cowboy. He walks around with his cowboy hat and, you know, um, that is for 30 years. But he is the person that you have to talk to about all of it. The water, which way does it run? Well, it used to run this way, but then X, Y, and Z happened. And so now it goes this way. And, you know, so you, you, you got to look to your local resources and I think talk to the community. And so while the Gwenon project did get into some litigation, that was in some ways expected because there are um, organizations out there that are used to doing that, even though conversations were had uh, with them earlier. But what is useful that, you know, regardless of the litigation, when you're in conversation, you're, you're addressing the concerns in, in a holistic way, but early on. And you're not trying to be reactive to, oh, somebody's got this concern. What are we going to do? What's the patch? No, we don't need a patch because our approach and our perspective is to do this in the smartest way possible. And ultimately, you're building a city. People want to buy property, live there, be safe, have insurance. They are going to need these these safety things. So also not looking at it as like, oh, this is a requirement that I have to kind of figure out. But like, no, this is what we need to look at to make sure that the new built environment is is safe and sustainable. So, so you know, the ability, not just us as the design team, but really those people who have a larger stake, like the developer or the agencies, right? I think it's critical that they need to understand this thing, not just from an environmental perspective, but also financial uh, construction design has to be absolutely comprehensive. That's one. The, the other uh, component of it um, is... Obviously, um, it's it's not a inexpensive endeavor by any means. However, um, what Corny said that was critically important is that you can never look at it as a patch, right? You absolutely need to be very proactive from the front end, right? In other words, you need to be. For us, we actually needed to be the bearer of the bad news in the beginning. Right. So the idea is you table all these different things. But the good thing about this particular development team is that they were fully aware of that before we even engage and or any of the engineers engage. So one of the first thing that the development team done was they ceded some money um, to the local county government to assist with the local um, people who have suffered. Yeah, uh, some um, fire losses. At the same time, I believe they ceded some money to UC Berkeley. This is why we had a team of people who actually was able through a much more academic and scientific approach to look at the problem without the biases of code, right? And really to come up with uh, solutions that are viable and not particularly bias towards the, the necessities of the development, but really looking at it from a much larger perspective. So that was actually way before there was even any discussion of development of the Grenat Valley. So one of the things that strikes me as being really interesting about all this is that although you're a relatively small firm, you are an architecture firm, full stop. And I should mention for the, you know, for the uh, listeners who have not yet had a chance to navigate to your resources, which I will drop into the notes, you know, the, the, the designs are, are very well detailed and, and beautiful and, uh, and at a human scale, but it actually sort of sounds like you're playing the role of master planners in a lot of these situations. Um, do you, do you, have you considered expanding your, your role uh, or your uh, firm description into urban planning or master planning? Or do you want to sort of just stay out of that, uh, stay out of that area? Your background. <laughs> so for us, um, the designing of any one building, there's a large component of master planning involved because what you're actually doing 
is you are now going to change the way in which that particular location is going to be after your, your building sited on that particular. It's like throwing a pebble in the pond. It's always going to ripple. Right. So we definitely take a complete sort of contextual approach to every single project. So we do do master plans. Right. It's just the master plans here in the United States can't even come close to the master plans that we do in in China. And you know that. Right. So because then you're really looking at impacting thousands and not tens of thousands of, of citizenries or population. The type of master plan here is, um, although we could assist agencies to do larger 20-year or 50-year master plans, but to us, that is, first of all, the, the, the ability to really witness the results of those efforts is a lot slower here in the U.S., right? I mean, just by the nature they're called 20-year plans tells you whether any of those ideas are going to be in place in 20 years or say 50 years is is hard to tell, right? And so we do engage in that, um, but I think more than just planning, um, we've been we have a small reputation, and we're actually beginning to think um, whether or not we want to engage is. Um, because we understand the value system, we actually we we know how to do a complete performance for a developer, and we actually use that as a design um, tool to inform how the design should be done, right? Uh, by understanding the the what and, focus, right? right. What the focus, the, right? Necessarily the aesthetic design, but this is like putting the programmatic parts together, right. understanding you know, where the revenue, the return on investment is going to come in and things like that. So, like, people have called us that we're actually ambassadors of the... Client ambassadors. The client ambassadors. And and project ambassadors, you know, we, because we do really, so, in kind of, like, the master planning, it's, you know, there's the land planning that happens, but we, as, as ambassadors for projects, just in general, we really, um, focus our energy and and our whole team is geared this way to understanding what is going to be the best decision for the project, not necessarily for any one individual. And so that's your planning, your community, uh, your your local neighborhood community, the design community at large, and of course the the client, the developer. If it's private and if it's a public agency, you know, all of their um, constituents that are that have needs that need to be met with the project. So balancing all those things is kind of like, well, I feel like sometimes that's the big master plan. It's like, okay, well, it's just lay out all these it, priorities and align it, them. It's now we're wondering, my God, we made a lot of money for our clients. <laughs> so rather than just thinking in terms of a traditional architectural fee, which is at a percentage of the construction cost, um, it was in fact uh, Cushman Wakefield who having lunch with the, the the director of the Silicon Valley Cushman Wayfield, um, you know, we're celebrating the fact the building we designed was fully leased. Um, and uh, after COVID, it's a single tenant lease. And it was, as we know, um, even particularly now in today's market, that's like in pop, it's an office building, right? So we're celebrating that fact. And he actually at one point looked at me and says, you know what? how come architects don't get a commission, <laughs> right? And so- We're working on that. Yeah, we're trying. So, you know, depending on the project and, and how well we can work with our clients, we are now actually, you know, uh, announcing to our clients that, you know, we'd be interested not just to serve as the architects, but also uh, as a partner. And then, you know, with the idea that we will actually invest into the project. So. It is no longer about just our fees, but it's the fees with the return on the success of the project. And so that, in fact, let me tell you, the project that we nailed it and the Silicon Valley project, um, our initial presentation to the client was don't do this, right? Um, It it was a small sort of uh, invited competition between 
us and some major U.S. corporate firms. I'm way the hell out in Shanghai. The fees for that invitational design was competition was so low, and the, the request was fly-throughs, renderings. I'm looking at that budget. I don't have the money to do that. The corporates have, right? Because it is about a 200,000 square feet project in Silicon Valley. Um, I decided to gamble and run some performance. And I, my metrics, the numbers that I receive in terms of the average rent per square foot was off by 20%. And so when I went to present, I actually didn't show any schemes. The decision was a, a gamble. I figured that my practice with Shanghai was successful. We've only been in Shanghai for, at that point, less than five years. I don't have a problem continuing out there since I already resigned from USC anyway. So there was a little bit of risk. We eventually declined the competition fee. We basically went with seven different uh, possibilities. Oh, and besides, the zoning wasn't set. There's no zoning. It, 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 it needed, was in flux, right? It had right. a general plan amendment, and but the zoning of had been updated, so right. it was in flux. And so it's going to be one of those negotiated uh, development agreements. So one of the thoughts we had was, if you're going to do a design competition, it's just a beauty contest. By the time you win the project, you're going to have to redo it again based on the real criteria so you negotiate with the city. So then the decision was, you know what, I'm going to run the performa. Well, when you run a performa where you're actually revenues 20% less, not a single cap rate came in that tells me, let's do this. So flew from uh, Shanghai to San Francisco, then with the bad news to say, hey, listen, you really shouldn't do this, really got them angry. They were really angry because they said, listen, of all the firms we invited, you're the design, you taught yourself to be the design one, and you come in here and you're going to try to tell us that your numbers, that we don't know how to do our numbers, basically, right? And In some ways, I mean, luckily, the, the client knew Paul some previously, and you know, that's how we start projects. We need to understand what we're able to do, what needs to be done. So running the, the general check on the performa, a, a very simple performa, is a first step in all the projects that we do because you got to understand that groundwork to then go into massing and cycling. Right, because sometimes, you know, we prescribe that idea that maxing out the FAR is really, or the density may not always work. Because you have associated construction costs, right? And then there's the market uh, rate. You really got to understand where that good balance is. And not to mention some sites, you really don't want to just pack it all up, right? So we went in and, and basically told them the bad news, which was based on false um, or erroneous uh, data. That data point. Yes. So the rent rate was wrong. Yeah. And I'm going <laughs> to pack it up thinking, oh, I messed this one up. Um, the client graciously looked at me and says, can you go outside? I need to talk to my team. And then uh, uh, about five to about 15 minutes, invited me back in. Less time than a cup of coffee. I remember that clearly. Went back and sat down. I was completely depressed. Right? Uh, but then at the same time, I was kind of expecting it. And then they looked at me and said, listen, you mean to tell me you flew in? Um, just tell us not to do the project. I say, in essence, that's, yes, that is my message. And they said, well, then that means you're planning to fly home empty-handed. I say, yes. And then they looked at me and said, why? I said, well, you called me. I didn't call you. And if the project's not going to work, I need to tell you that. Because I do know that if you do have a viable project, then you will call me, right? Because you know our design capabilities, right? And maybe my my accounting acumen is not as great, or or doing data collection, right? I mean, whatever. Right? Um, <laughs> it's not as comprehensive, but at least we we do the due diligence and run a check, right, to inform the design. And they looked at it and they say, "Really?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "Like I said, if it's a viable project, you will call me." And they said, you know what, we just ran, quickly ran um, a, a check based on the, using the spreadsheet I gave them and plugged in the 
ripe revenue, which is, was only one cell in the Excel spreadsheet, and it populates all seven different scenarios. And he says, every one of those, the cap rate's above 6.5. And I'm looking at that, and I said, with well, a cap rate of 6.5, it's bankable. She looked at me and said, yeah, I told you, don't run numbers. I said, no, again, you're not understanding. I wasn't trying to run numbers. I was just trying to see whether this is a viable project. And, and where it needed to be adjusted if it wasn't viable at the... And they said, listen, if you're willing to, to do this for the sake of the project, that's rare. So my understanding is you don't have an office in LA anymore. I said, no, we're all in Shanghai. And the next one was, how long would it take for you to set up an office? I said, at least six months. And then she, you know, the, the CEO uh, at that time smiled at me and says, I think we can give you six months, but you got to be on the ground running six months. We will award you the project. And that I called Courtney. Well, I called my wife first. And said, okay, let's, we're moving. We're moving back home. Then I called Courtney and he says, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> can you get to LA first? And we need to get an office started. And uh, call some of my former students, borrow their facilities to say, I need to get started. Can you guys help? And uh, by April, you were on the ground, right? Yeah, it was a little later than that. But, okay. but we were all in full force by June. Yeah, six months so, later. The presentation was in late November. I mean, <laughs> and we're still here. Yeah. That That is an incredible story. And I mean, <laughs> it, it, it definitely... I think that would resonate no matter what market you were working in, because if you're going to be ethical, transparent, be willing to put your your business, you know, your immediate business concerns at risk, um, you know, you're you're appointing yourself not only the ambassador of the project, but the office of management and budget and the treasury exchequer and everything else. Um, you know, it's 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 audacious, but I totally understand why it worked, and I actually don't understand why more architects don't do it. Um, it, it. The idea that we simply accept the construction fee or the, the fee as a percentage of the construction cost is, is absurd when you think, when you look at it this way. Yeah. And there's no standardization of fees here in the U S just about everywhere else we worked in. There's some, I mean, they're not, they're not fixed, but there's a range Right. And and then that levels the playing field to allow the the professional components of the qualification becomes more poignant. Right. So you're not just comparing how much we will cost. Right? Not not to mention and maybe just very fortunate that all our clients never go to the, the lowest bidder. I mean there are clients out there, right? So uh, but I, I think any good clients will know that when you go to the lowest bidder you always get, there's a huge risk, right? Um, and so, so we, yeah, yeah. So, so like I said, it's our practice is really much more comprehensive in that way. Is not just looking at us as an architect, right, within the bounds of what our architect should do, but really doing our best to try to understand what should the owner be doing and what is that their objectives. How do we help them to get there? And sometimes it's taking the hat off being an architect and being something different, right? So in addition to being planning, like I, like you said, it's actually we're accountants, right? We're using the, the... That's not our preferred role. No, of course not. <laughs> we're not going to be putting CPA next to the, uh, no. the uh, AIA credentials and no. all that bit. Okay. But I think you had like three other topics at the onset that you wanted to get to. So we're definitely going to have to schedule another meeting because we're indeed, not going to get indeed. to them all. And, and here's my proposal for, for you guys to do an executive management course, uh, you know, from the architect's perspective to the owners. Like, here's how to be successful together on a project. You've got to be willing to, to take on all these parameters. Um, thank you so much, uh, Paul and Courtney. Uh, first design here on Unfrozen. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. It's been-